My daddy's gone on, my grandpa's gone on, my great-grandpa's gone on. But they still live. You know, the, the spray is still here. Well, they tell me of a home where no storm clouds rise. Tell me of a home far away. Welcome back, everybody, to part two of November's podcast episode featuring folk medicine in Appalachia. So last week we touched on briefly what folk medicine is, where it comes from, um, and some practices that are involved in that, such as faith healing and some home remedies. This week we're going to turn our attention more to some of the medicinal plants and some of the changes that have occurred over time in regards to folk medicine. So, you know, as we as we talked about last week, we all have our go-tos for healing um, colds and flus. Certainly most of us have probably taken Sudafed or Mucinex at some point, but we also probably have our home remedies like our hot toddies or a favorite tea um, or maybe some soup. A lot of people also are now beginning to turn back to more herbal-based medicines such as Sambucal, which comes from the elderberry plant and um, is said to be one of the best medicines for preventing and easing the symptoms of the flu. Um, you might also take some emergency, those fun fizzy little packets that are made out of, I don't know, dissolvable pop rocks is what it seems yeah, like. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but certainly, you know, taking something like a plate of cooked greens is an excellent alternative to taking a processed packet of emergency. Far more delicious and great and, and much better with cornbread. I gotta <laughs> say, I tried to dip my cornbread in the emergency and it just, just came out all wrong. Yeah. So... You know, these are just some examples of medicines now that are based on folk medicines, especially from this region. Um, I think we can say with confidence that greens are are common food throughout this region. Still popular, still delicious. <laughs> and for a good reason. Yes. Good for you. Um, so Appalachia, as, as we told you guys last week, is called by some as the apothecary of North America and is home to just an incredible diversity of medicinal plants um, that grow here in the wild. And that's because, um, as I've been told at least, uh, Appalachia, especially southern Appalachia, supports three different like growing zones. Mm -hmm. So plants that can be found as far south as like Mexico can grow here. Um, and then plants that grow as far north as like Canada can can still grow in this weather here. Um, and then there's a third group which are endemic to the region and they're plants that are only found in southern Appalachia. So um, definitely supports an incredible amount of um, plant diversity. Many of these plants, again, as we told you last week, have been over harvested because they are such great medicines. And that includes things like lady slipper and ginseng. Um, and I think golden seals getting up there where yes. it's starting to become over harvested. Yep. We've included some interviews from Flora Youngblood, who we featured last week, as well as a more contemporary herbalist, Rhonda Reno. Um, we've excluded some of the more um, detailed pieces on using plants as medicine simply because we don't want to give anybody the wrong ideas about healing themselves with plant medicine. That's certainly something that should still be left to professional. 
Um, if you guys listened to the episode last week, we mentioned how Flora's father was an herbalist, and so she was raised as a child, um, learning how to harvest these medicines and how to use them properly. And certainly, those are incredibly important aspects to using plant medicine. Um, something as simple as the time of harvest can take a plant that's toxic to healing. Yep. Um, the elderberry is a great example. Do not... <laughs> Please do not go out and start harvesting elderberry. Elderberry is actually really um, toxic to humans. Um, only the berries at the right time, when they're ripe enough, can be used as medicine. It's um yeah it's it's not a uh, a tightrope that that anyone needs to be walking without um, coordinating or working with a professional herbalist. Mm -hmm. And even professional herbalists will tell you that there are moments when they um, have. You know, they may mis misidentify something, um, and it's not until they get back to um, their uh, their office or, or wherever they're they're working with the herbs that they recognize. Oh, this is not what I thought it was, mm -hmm. and they're able to to you know, uh, you know, whew, put that aside and not utilize it because um, there there are a lot of uh, mimics out there, um, a lot of plants that mimic other plants or. Uh, resemble other plants and again uh, Kenny you know last week just used you know mushroom harvesting as a great <laughs> example and and I will underscore that again it's you know treat this as the same as you would if you were going out to harvest mushrooms because you know there's you know the difference between an, an edible mushroom and a poisonous mushroom can be very minute uh, so do not um, go out and attempt to harvest these without without a professional uh, with you or under the direction of a professional yeah so our goal with sharing these excerpts is that you can get a better sense of the importance of folk medicine and the role that it played in Appalachian culture, not to provide you with the tools to harvest yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, and treat use. yourself to folk medicine. Yeah. Um, but if you are interested in learning more, there are a lot of really great resources out there. Again, we'll post these to our website. Um, I definitely encourage you to pick up Foxfire One and read some more about home remedies. Um, and then certainly we'll post some links to some really great books about Southern Appalachian folk medicine. Um, but plants played a really important role in folk medicine in addition to some of the more spiritual healing practices. And most, or if not all, of the plant knowledge um, that people in this region relied on came from the Native Americans originally. So even though immigrants who came into this region and settled certainly had knowledge of plants and how to use plant medicines, um, a lot of the plants in this region, as we mentioned, are specific to this area. And so they had to learn about those plants from the Native Americans. The Cherokee have a really awesome legend um, that the origin of plant medicine came from this council that was held among the animals who were uh, not happy with the humans and wanted to find a way to punish the humans. And so each animal kept coming up with uh, an idea for how to punish the humans, and it didn't work out for one reason or another. And finally, these animals or creatures that were smaller than the eye could see, um, so presumably something akin to germs as we know them now, came to the animal council and said that they would spread disease through the humans. The green people or the plants took pity on the humans and swore that for every disease that the animals cursed the humans with, the plants would have a remedy. And so that's the the gist of the myth behind where 
all of these plant medicines come from, which I think is really cool that, you know, there's this sense of balance in the natural world between disease and, and medicine. Um, and certainly that was only true until the Europeans arrived in the right. smallpox. <laughs> yeah, right. So anyway, the two excerpts we're going to share today, um, as I mentioned, come from Flora Youngblood. And she's talking about harvesting plants with her father and um, sharing those with people who came to him um, looking for help. And then also from Rhonda Reno, who is a contemporary herbalist who still continues the folk traditions that she um, learned from her grandmother, who learned them from her great-grandmother and so on. Yeah, Rhonda, Rhonda traces back uh, her her line to, I think, the, the, the 18th century, 1748 is when she identifies as sort of the start of her mm-hmm. uh, she has a she has a herbalism business an apothecary business and her their you know circa date is 1748 yeah um, so that's how far back she traces the tradition in her family mm-hmm. and she'll also share a little bit about other home remedies and um, faith healing practices that she learned as well we and that's was, where you hunted herbs up back in there? Yeah, yeah, we'd go back in there and dig them up. My daddy, I'd go with it, and we'd go in there. He'd say, all right, get that some apple. Right there's some apple. Now let's get them. I'd hop off and dig them up for him. You'd dig them, that's with the shovel? Yeah, with the shovel. Or, uh-huh, that old shovel, that little mat, whichever one we had that was handy. Did then, they have to be a certain quality or anything? No, or? uh-uh. Just so it's a button. Wasn't yeah. anything just so it's a and you'd gather the whole plant? I'd gather the whole plant. Roots and, and leaves he'd make, and he'd make, uh, he'd take the leaves and make different things, uh, and then the roots would make the other stuff, you know. Uh, like what? Uh, now, uh, he'd take the roots and make a, for sores, a poultice. Uh-huh. Take and beat it up. While they're it. fresh? Uh-huh, and, and then, uh, 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 mix it with flour, uh-huh. where it would stick together, and uh, then make little poultices. Instead of putting up, uh, beating them up for the cloth, I'd grind them. Okay, so let's get the whole process here. Yeah. It, you'd go dig the herbs, uh-huh. and then bring them back. Yeah. And then what would you do with them? We'd wash them real clean, whether it be a bit of grit on them, no work. Uh-huh. Then we would trim them and fix them up and then dry them and then powder them. What did you trim off of them? What would you trim? Uh, a lot of uh, this, the access, like, you know, one of these vines here, we had some dead on it, you know. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And we'd trim off all of the, what wasn't good, what wasn't good in the life. Some have a little dead leaves, you know, we'd trim all that off. Uh-huh. Trim it all up. And then we would put it in a pan, put it in the stove, dry it, and then take it out and powder it up. And put it in a little bottle. put it in little, little bottles. How long would it take to dry it and all that off it together? It didn't take long if you put it in the pan and put it in the stove. It didn't take it long to dry that. We had to dry it slow, say about an hour. Because we had wood stoves. And we would uh, take about an hour to dry it. And then powder it up. He put it all up in his little... Bottles and uh, then when people come, then he'd uh, hand him a little spoon. He'd know how much to give, for he knows the case, you know. Uh, the what? He, the case? Yeah, he'd diagnose what they had. Uh-huh. You know, they'd come, they wouldn't know what was the matter with them. They'd come to him, he'd tell them what it was. Then he would uh, get the air bath that went with that disease and dose it out. 
Well, I owe everything that I am to my granny. My great granny, actually. Her name was Vera McPherson Forster. And the first thing she ever taught me how to make was rose petal cream. She had some big old pretty red English cabbage roses. And her and my two great great aunts, her sisters, Rose and Pearl, they loved that stuff. They take dry them petals out and then they mash them down and mix them with hog lard back then. And and they put it on their hands and it make her hands smell good and it make her hands soft. And of course, they use it for rouge and lipstick and different things like that. And of course, second thing she Smells told us nice. how to make was burn salve. Really? Yes. It's made out of plantain and slippery elm. Mm -hmm. But my papa and them made moonshine. <laughs> and of course, they's always getting burned on copper steel, the steels and stuff. And Granny, of course, she'd run out there and douse them with this mess. Mm -hmm. Of course, it had kerosene in it too. Really? Yes, kerosene was cure all to my Granny. She believed everything from a stump toe to kerosene and sugar would cure what ailed you. She was a firm believer in that. I can remember being little and her taking kerosene and sugar and feeding it to all of us littlings. For what? Spray and clean out, she called it. You know, when you live up here in the mountains, you know, you're drinking out of streams and stuff, you kind of get ran worms a little yeah. bit. <laughs> Tend to get them a little bit. Well, she believed in cleaning you out whether you had them or not. Kerosene on the stump toe. Uh, the old house we lived in had just old granite rock steps in it and course running up and down bare toed not paying attention where we was going we'd stump our toes and tear half the toenail up me you could hear it coming coming from the back end of the the cabin to the front end of the house just to get in it she stood six foot one and weighed 265 pounds she's a big old woman you hear her coming through the house and we noticed as soon as she was coming she was going to stop right up on that stoop and grab that kerosene can she was coming after us so we'd run <laughs> we didn't want that kerosene can nowhere near us did it burn? Oh, Lord, yes. Like you, somebody set you on fire. Yes, it burnt so bad, but you know it cured. It never got an infection. And, of course, us refusing to keep a Band-Aid or a piece of rag or anything on our feet, we was forever. You know, I mean, it. but, you know, we never got an infection or nothing. But she taught us how to do that, and she taught us, um, I guess they call it fake healing now. Talk the fire out of burns and buy warts. Can you do that? Uh, I talk fire out burns, uh, but I've done past the knowledge on, and it has to go from male to female of non-related people. Yeah, that's what my nana can do that. Yeah, it has to. It, it, in other words, I have to tell a male that's not related to me by blood or marriage. It has to pass outside the family, then he can actually pass it back to a female back inside of our family, oh, okay. and it's it's just done that way amongst mountain people through the years. That way, it stays in the vicinity. It don't leave it. Mm -hmm. So, and the same thing with buying warts. Can you buy warts? No, I never did learn that particular trade. Uh, Mr. White, the, one of the old timers that used to live up in these parts, he, uh, he could. My uncle could. Yeah, uh, he, he, he'd come up and he'd give him a coder. He'd take that quarter and rub it on the wart, and then he'd go out in the yard and he'd walk out there for about 20 minutes and he'd go bury it something until he'd go bury it. And it, it, a few days later, it'd fall off. I mean, it, it works. I mean, you know, but they call it fake healing now, I believe. But we're all what they call granny witches, you know, just healers. Say that again? Granny witches. Really? Mm-hmm. I ain't never heard us call nothing else. Huh. I've heard root women. I've heard granny women. Mm -hmm. But 
up around here, they were all called granny witches, and you'll find them called the same thing up through Kentucky, up through the Ozarks and everything. We are granny witches. I did not know that. Yep. There's a a blog that a little girl done. It really surprised me because I, you know, like I said, this was just something I thought was really indigenous to our area, and apparently that it's not. Granny witches go all the way up through Kentucky. And the reason they were called that because of the healing efforts, you know, through, you know, a lot of people believed in superstition and magic back in the old days, you know, so that's where the witch part came in. Healers, healing women, healers. And granny was a symbol of respect and wisdom. Okay, so this final section is going to shift gears a bit and look at sort of the change over time of folk medicine traditions. And so we're going to lead with a clip from Kenny Runyon, who was just, how would you describe Kenny? A, a wealth of information, a very unique character who lived in Mountain City. He was interviewed so many times by Foxfire, and he knew everything about this area. I mean, the, the students would go on walks with Kenny, and he would just identify everything and what it was used for. To me, Kenny is like a holdover from the 18th, 19th century era, yes. like woodsman. Yeah, he's definitely out of time. <laughs> yes, um, where he carries with him knowledge about the land and about the flora and the fauna. And his, his aesthetics are rooted in nature in a way that you know, I don't think many of us could understand or identify just that's how closely tied he was with this space and these mountains. Um, and he incorporated that landscape in the, in the natural world in everything that he did. Mm -hmm. You have this hierarchical list of people that you wish you could have met. Like, you know, if only we could have had time with... <laughs> and Kenny Runyon is at the top of my list. Yeah. He's pretty amazing. Um, so we're unfortunately only sharing a short clip from him because the audio quality from his interviews was pretty poor since they were hiking in the woods and trying to record. Yep. Um, but I, I think this piece still kind of lands appropriately because he talks about um, his opinion about conventional medicine versus herbal medicine. Um, and also take note of what Kenny says when he talks about where he learned all of this from. Um, and then the following clip will be from another contemporary herbalist, Patricia Caritzi Howell, who works pretty closely with Foxfire through programming um, here at the museum. And she is, during her interview, she's taking students um, kind of on this, you know, historical trajectory of folk medicine. And so she shares some really interesting information about why folk medicine really became replaced with conventional medicine that we know today um, and how how uh, herbalism is approached and treated in America and what and what she's doing to try to promote herbalism in the region. Do you think that medicine's good like going to the doctor do you think that can help you? Yeah uh yeah, it could help you if you uh, got any faith in the doctor. Yeah. You think a doctor is any good? Is he worth the money? <laughs> well, sometimes he can need you. <laughs> Give you a shot. Yeah. Give you a shot. Do you think it's better to use 
herbs and stuff from the woods, or do you think it's better to get medicine from a doctor? Well, I, I believe it'd be better if you if you'd use it to get out of this earth here, where you know where, than I do know by the way I know. Mm -hmm. I hope that Foxfire crowd, I guess Sue told you about it, she come down I give her a big lift on them herbs and things. Yeah. Yeah. I know everything there in the mountains, not a brain. Pork root and ginseng, you know that, don't you? Yeah. Seven bark. Where'd you learn all of that about herbs, Kenny? There used to be an old Indian doctor come and stay with us a long time. And when, if ever I hear anything, I've got her. I remember. Now, these are seven bark to make the best poultice for a rise that ever used in your life. It's seven bark. And that poke root, I know you know what it is. It's as poison as strychnine. Yeah. You dig up the bottom part of it, you know, the root of it, mm -hmm. and roast that stuff like a sweet tater, lay you down something like a clean cloth. Just rub it off like that on that. Put it to your bottom of your foot, and if you've got a rising hair anywhere, it, it'll draw out. I don't care how black your foot is, when you pull it off, it's as white as cotton. You can feel her giving that yeah. drawing. What sort of, I don't know, uh, education or like certification do you need to be an herbalist? Well, that's a very controversial topic. Really? Yes, because until very, very recently, um, in the, well, first of all, the United States is kind of unique because we don't have any kind of recognition for the practice of herbalism on the federal or state level. So that means that anyone could call themselves an herbalist even if they don't know anything. You know, you could call yourself an herbalist. It doesn't have a wow. legal definition. We're the only industrialized country in the world that doesn't recognize plant medicine as a legitimate form of medicine. Until really recently, now there's a couple universities that are offering a master's in herbal sciences. So these, these, this group that's coming through in a few minutes, they're students at Bastyr University, which is outside of Seattle, and it's a naturopathic college. So they study, basically to be a, a naturopathic doctor, which is very similar training to what a regular doctor would do, except that they... Um, Instead of using pharmaceuticals, they use supplements and herbs. I see. Okay? Yeah. You get in the picture? Mm -hmm. So, in the United States, until around World War I, the, you know, 1912, 1918, right around in that range of time, the majority of the doctors who practiced in the United States were naturopaths. And what happened at that time was that there was a... Um, well, first of all, during World War One, a lot of nerve gases and, and chemical weapons were developed, particularly by the DuPont Corporation. And um, as a result of all that, they developed a bunch of medicines out of that. Drugs came out of that. So when World War One was over, they had this whole industry that was based on manufacturing chemical weapons for warfare. And as a sideline, they developed some drugs. We live in a place in, the, in this country where this whole tradition of using plant medicines and foods as therapies was very consciously 
denigrated. One of the things that makes the Appalachian Mountains so unique is that because of the isolation of the mountains and the people living here, that tradition was never wiped out. It stayed intact, a lot to do with the fact that people didn't have access to any other medicine and they didn't have a lot of money, so they kept using plant medicines. Most of the plants that people use as herbalists are plants that are native to the southern Appalachians even in other parts of the world. So when I was in Greece one time, I went into an herb shop, and the herbs that they were selling, two-thirds of them are things that grow wild here. So those are like the plants that are, that's what's so amazing about this area. It's referred to as the apothecary of North America. Yeah, you were mentioning something about that when I first yeah. got to meet you. Yeah. So we, you know, we have this wealth here, that we need to also protect through conservation. So that's another um, alliance that I hope we'll be able to make in the next year is with some of the medicinal plant conservation groups uh, that are operating in the country mm -hmm. to make sure that you know everything that we teach people about plants here also incorporates information about what's endangered, what's at risk, things like that. Because we don't just want to say, here's this plant, it does all this amazing things and let people go out and over-harvest it. Oh, yeah, I hadn't right? thought of that. Yeah. So, like, you know, have any of you seen lady slipper, pink lady slipper or yellow lady slipper? Well, that or the roots of that plant, um, if you make a tea out of it, it's a wonderful sleep aid. It's like you drink a tea of that, and all of a sudden you just have this wonderful drowsy feeling, and mm -hmm. you just want to go to sleep, and you fall asleep, and you have a great sleep and a good dream, and it's really wonderful. And so when Europeans first came here and they learned about that medicine, because it's such an obvious plant, you can't mistake it for anything else, it was being over-harvested for hundreds of years and exported to Europe as a medicine by the ton. And if you dig up one of those plants, the roots of it probably weigh one-sixteenth of an ounce, each plant. Oh. So they were exporting like 30 tons out of Savannah every year. Wow. So that plant is now um, protected through all its native habitat, specifically because it's such a good medicine that it was over-harvested. So we want to make sure that doesn't happen to some of these other plants. Are there any plants now that that is happening to? Yeah, lots. Like black cohosh is one that's a very common woodland plant here. Bloodroot, of course ginseng is very protected, um, technically. Um, uh, blue cohosh is another plant, all of which grow here on this mountain. So after listening to all of this, we hope you have a better sense of what folk medicine is and what it means in Appalachia. Um, but we also just want to touch on the fact that herbalism offers an opportunity for more accessible form of health care. Yeah, I think it, it, it is more accessible. I think it's something where people can take ownership of their of their wellness. Um, it's also very relevant still to this region in rural places all over all over the United States who still face um, a bit of a health a, a healthcare accessibility crisis, um, where so so many rural communities do not have access to 
health facilities, modern health facilities, in the sense of a hospital. Um, there are people, even in this county, who are, you know, at half an hour's drive from the nearest medical facility, and even that medical facility is limited on the health care it can provide. So really, they could be as much as an hour or more away from, from health care. Um, so a lot of folks in this region are still uh, connected to these holistic practices and, you know, and, and just as, um, you know, herbalism being a response to uh, a lack of, you know, quote unquote professional health care, um, it continues to be so. Um, and it's why, you know, our grandparents and our parents still you know, share with us these, these remedies and these, um, these wellness, um, approaches, uh, preventative wellness approaches to our health. Um, because it's still, it's still a relevant, relevant issue, uh, in Southern, throughout Southern Appalachia and really in rural communities all over the country. So these, you know, this stuff has merit it has value. It's proven through practice. Uh, in a lot of cases, to to work and to improve our overall health, and uh, so that's sort of my soapbox moment for this: is that you know, yeah, this is a, a cultural um, analysis or an analysis of a cultural uh, folkways uh, piece, you know, folk medicine and faith healing, but it's also something that is uh, practical and relevant uh, and still ongoing in this in this culture. So I hope we've been able to open your eyes a bit to some other healing practices and certainly the relevance that they continue to have today, as TJ mentioned. And there are so many great resources out there. There are. And we have are. several of them in our own collection, but we will certainly uh, share with you some of our favorites from other sources outside of the mm -hmm. Foxfire archive. Yeah, so definitely go to your library, pick up a copy of Foxfire One, and then while you're at the library or at home, Jump on over to our website, www.boxfire.org. Go under News and Journals. We'll have full transcripts there, as always, from the interviews. And we'll also have just a wealth of resources. And if you're in the area, come visit us. We have um, plant walks that we hold from spring until fall. So we've wrapped up for the winter, but certainly put that on your calendar for next spring. Um, that's a great opportunity to meet local herbalists and to you know, get some hands-on experience in, in what herbalism could be like. And you can also visit our newest uh, exhibit or our um, workshop space, which is the Phillips Cabin, which is our herbalism uh, cabin. We've got a, um, a native herb prop um, uh, propagation gardens on both sides of the cabin, and then we have a lot of information inside the cabin about folk medicine and, and, and this sort of thing. Yeah. I think it's appropriate to end this podcast with what Francis Lamb says, <laughs> simply to... Be well. Yes. Take care of yourself this this cold and flu season. Oh, yeah. For Pete's sake. <laughs> and we hope that TJ feels better. <laughs> all right. We'll see you all next time. Bye. If you don't like that, you can throw it away. I like it. <laughs>